I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source, American conversation with global attitude, we call it. This time it's all about William James, thinker and writer, known widely in the 19th century as the adorable genius who invented American pragmatism. He was a brain scientist, a student of war and religion, a philosopher who can feel like a very lively presence in the shadows of our condition, whatever we call it in the 2020s. Philosopher John Cagg is our guest to enlist William James in a sort of quest for insight and healing in a divided nation today. John Cagg, I've read three books that you've written in the last 10 years about William James, including Sick Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life from Princeton University Press. You bring him alive, John Cagg. And I'm wondering, how did he come into your life? Chris, first, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. William James. So when I think about William James, I think about him as this sort of adorable genius, but also a very intelligent and very compassionate uncle. And I think about him that way because I was 16 when I started uh, reading his essays and reading The Principles of Psychology, directed by a professor by the name of Doug Anderson. He came up to me and said, Keg, you seem a little disturbed. Maybe you want to go read some William James. And I was a sort of disturbed teenager. I had what William James diagnosed as a sort of sick soul. And I gravitated toward James because he spoke to these existential issues that I was thinking about, whether life is worth living, what makes life meaningful, the real flesh and blood of philosophy in ways that a lot of other philosophers, particularly from the 18th century or 17th century, had not. And James is the founder of American pragmatism, but also the founder of empirical psychology in the United States. And when these two fields, psychology and philosophy, teamed up, they seemed fairly compelling to me as a young man working my way through college. Mm. But as I really read through James, I came to understand that he, unlike any other philosopher that I'd ever come across, spoke to my particular time James, born in 1842, dies in 1910, Mm. lives through the Civil War. Two of his brothers are badly injured in the Civil War. And he's really coming of age intellectually in a moment of real transition in the United States, the sort of transition that probably we can identify today. A nation divided, a nation politically and ideologically fraught. War has just ended. The question of uh, peace is on on everyone's mind and also the question of what the meaning of freedom is. At the same time, James is in the 1870s and 1880s really thinking about the consequences of a technological revolution that is occurring in the 19th century and the advent of a number of mechanical and technological um, advancements, let's just say. Right. And we think of it as a Gilded Age, first Gilded Age, we're in the second one now, first Gilded Age built up industrial America, second Gilded Age may have sold a lot of it off in a certain way, but you were also, his brother Wilkie was gravely wounded, he was in that Massachusetts Black Regiment in the Civil War, and nearly died, was never the same again, nor his brother Bob, so they went through all of that, but he, to my mind, first of all, he's one of the great brother acts in American history. Brother Henry, the novelist, the top of the heap in American literature forever. The wise guy line is that William was the great writer in the family, Henry, the great psychologist, whatever. He was also 
called Henry's Cooler Brother. But so many of the issues he thought about are still with us. We'll get to the whole AI question and how mental process works, the war question. But even for me, not a scholar of William James at all, he's a man who speaks to us today in an irresistible voice. I think so too. And what's interesting is that we oftentimes think about American pragmatism as this forward-looking, action-based philosophy Uh, We think about the pragmatic maxim saying truth should be judged by its practical consequences. That's true, but William James also had this sort of darker, tragic side to him that I found very honest and very realistic about some of the difficulties that humans like us are facing. So times in which we feel deeply unfree and deeply um, just sort of bogged down. I experienced that as a teenager, but when I look around my students today, I've been teaching for Mm. 14 years now, I mean, my students sometimes feel this lack of freedom. And James speaks to how to break through that experience. He describes the sick soul in the varieties of religious experience as a person who experiences the possibilities of the world as flat, dead, Mm. cold. This is sick souledness. And the whole point for a six-old individual, at least according to James, is to figure out how to be twice born, in his words, which really means to break through the malaise, to break through the cloud. And uh, I found that very appealing as an individual. And also, I found it very hopeful as a citizen in a community and in a nation like ours. Yeah, he believes it's a recoverable affliction. And he also applies it to nations, which is interesting in our case today, to me, that's the most fascinating thing, is the dark views of a very cheerful, positive man. But here's something he wrote at the age of 26 to an old friend from Berlin the previous winter. He said he had been on the continuous verge of suicide, but was feeling much better. He wrote, we long for sympathy for a purely personal communication, first with the soul of the world, and then with the soul of our fellows, And happy are they who think or know that they have got them, souls, that is. He writes, I confess that in the lonesome gloom which beset me for a couple of months last summer, the only feeling that kept me from giving up was that by waiting and living, by hook or crook, long enough, I might make my nick, however small a one, in the raw stuff we have to shape, and so assert my reality." That passage captures so clearly at a very early age for James mm. the way out of sick soulness. I think it does so in two ways, and I think it's really important for mm. us to think about today. James is a hero of free will. The idea of living and putting your back into something, and even if you have to fake it till you make it, <laughs> it really is pushing us to hold on to what Richard Gale calls the Promethean self, this sense that one can do it. That's one side of James. But the other side of James is a sort of poobah or a sort of, uh, he believes that the meaning of life comes out of our connections with the world at large, personally, intimately, communal, connected, Mm -hmm. um, a type of communion, which stands at first glance apart from and against this sort of free will individualism. But for James, 
these two important aspects of being human are freedom on the one hand and our collectivity, our togetherness on the other is really what makes us tick. And he's really pushing us to understand that throughout his life's work from basically the 1870s when he uh, starts thinking through the will to believe straight through to his mystical and religious writings at the turn of the century to his death in 1910. Stick with that business of free will. As I read him, he basically says, you have a free will if you decide to have a free will. More or less, he says, my first act of free will will be to act as if I have free will. (laughs) We might say that that's a type of illegal philosophical bootstrapping. But if you think about what it really requires to get out of bed in the morning when you're feeling so low, it is a type of emotional bootstrapping. You get up and you look up and all of a sudden, if you, in James's words, wait and live, that maybe you'll have the chance to make your, what he calls, nick, nick of time. Mm-hmm. You know, we can think about Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau saying, the point of life is to improve your nick of time. <laughs> and I think that's what James is up to. When it comes to free will, there are lots of factors that might lead us to feel either completely out of control or completely under control, which is to say mm-hmm. completely unfree. And James is throughout his philosophical life and life as a psychologist, he's pushing back against those factors that lead us to feel unfree. And he's kind of like Rollo May says that right between stimulus and response, there's a little bit of space. And in that space, you can exert yourself. You can find where free will exists for you. And I think that that's really a compelling point that James sticks with throughout his life. I was going to say, what's the counter argument? Well, the counter argument is what James called determinism, which basically means that everything from the movement of frogs and ants to the movement of human beings and the beliefs that we have are determined by prior events in sort of lockstep fashion. And James simply could not abide that idea. He rejected it wholeheartedly because he thinks that it rejects something really interesting slash important about us as human beings, namely moral responsibility our sense that our actions actually can have some sort of effect in the real world, and the sense that our life is truly ours. I mean, when we think about the rise of artificial intelligence and robotics... you got to talk about that, yeah. ...in the contemporary world, and we talk about autonomous drones or autonomous computing, we really need to ask ourselves a question that William James is up to in the 1880s, 1890s, when he says... What is it to be a thinking, feeling, emoting being in the world? And he's reminding us that it's more than simply logic crunching or computing. It's about an entire embodied experience, along with all of the moral and existential issues like what is good? What is beautiful? Why is life worth living? Is life worth living? What makes life significant? And until art robotics can embody those types of questions in full-fledged ways, we have a long way to go, according to James. There's a sort of William James reflex inside that, and it comes up with respect to religion, with all sorts of things. But basically, do it. Try it. Risk it. And I'm also struck reading it again that there's a very American accent through this whole thing. Accentuate the positive. Take the chance. And you're taking the chance will improve everybody else's chances. Or, for example, I love Henry Stimson's line, big figure in 
the Defense Department in World War I and II, but he said, how do you make a man trustworthy? Answer, trust him. <laughs> what is that more than a hope? So, I mean, James says quite famously, he says, there are very few aspects of being a human that are so enduring than being able to live on a chance and a willingness to mm -hmm. live on a chance. That is what human beings uniquely are able to do and do all the time. His friend L. Lyman Cabot would say, every chance is my chance. In other words, mm -hmm. the unexpected turns of life and of the universe are opportunities for us to grow and to risk ourselves at our own risk, but also our own reward. And I think James is really pushing us to think that through, even and especially in times where the chances don't seem particularly good for us, like, like today. <laughs> like when I talk to my students, they're worried about the economy. They're worried about the social and political order. They're worried about global warming. They're worried about getting through to the next month with their rent. And James is there like a very friendly, very mm. smart uncle saying, keep going. Be not afraid of life. And if you are not afraid of life, act that way and it will become the reality. And for many of my students who are, I say, down, down and out, stuck, James is there to sort of help them through. Mm. And that's something that at least I find invaluable today in reading James. We'll come back to this whole business of how the mind works, what an embodied mind means. But digress a little bit on where he came from. Fascinating story. His grandfather was one of the richest men in New York, certainly, maybe in the country, virtually owned Syracuse. And that fortune kept Henry and William James going for the rest of their lives. There was Irish blood in that family, but as I say, big money and a certain established position at Harvard for a lifetime with William. But how do you account for the, the blossoming here? Maybe starting with the childhood in which they traveled the world, especially Europe, learned German, learned French, were completely at ease with regular people through Europe and the United States. James had a life, an early life, that insisted that he act freely. That was the sort of desire of his father, Henry Sr., to explore the opportunities that privilege afforded to the maximum extent. Interestingly, though, James, when you grow up in a family that says that you should be free all the time, you oftentimes feel anything but. Right. A driven father. Exactly. And so I think that James is given two mandates, uh, which I think accounts for his blossoming. One is to be free. The other is to mediate between two fields of study that really dominated the discourse in Boston in the 1860s through until the end of the century, which is the discussions surrounding science on the one hand. You can think about Darwin's 1858-1859 studies, Origin of Species, but then also, on the other hand, religion, and trying mm. to wed these two disciplines, which if we think about our contemporary life, these fields of study are still oftentimes pitted against each other. What William James tried to do throughout his intellectual life is bring them together and, and was incredibly prolific on the basis of trying to bring 
together an empirical model of what it is to be human, but then wed it to a spiritual life that he was unwilling to let go of. If you think about his early life, James living through the Civil War and coming out the other side, America had been torn apart by ideological strife, which, at least as far as pragmatism goes, meant that James believed that thoughts should be judged by their practical consequences, not their overblown, polarized selves, but rather we should look as thinkers about how our ideas and beliefs translate into action and affect the world, which leads us to be a little bit more modest, a little more gentle, a little more humble, a little more self-interrogating of the ideas that we have and the way that we express them. He would be in the restraint camp in American foreign policy today, I think. Absolutely. I mean, he was against imperialism till his dying day. And any sort of political or military overreach would be deeply disturbing to James. Uh, We sometimes think about James as being this sort of masculine individual that encourages uh, militaristic feelings. But he never would approve of what's going on in the Ukraine or in many of the uh, Middle Eastern arenas. That's a subtle question we'll get to it, that valuing the discipline of the military mind, military history, but somehow escaping the trap of eternal warfare. But stick with this interesting meld of the way the mind works, but also the soul sick where you began. For him, it's all connected. It's not all the same, but I'm just thinking about soul sickness, he leaned heavily on Tolstoy, the incomparable novelist, talking specifically about despair. There was a point in Tolstoy's life, and and James went deep into it, when suicide had seemed to Tolstoy the logical cure for his own misery. But he quotes Tolstoy saying, but something else in me kept me from the deed. It was a consciousness of life, a thirst for God, and a hope of finding someone to help. And of course, Tolstoy recovered. James concluded, the process is one of redemption, not of mere reversion to natural health. It feels to the sufferer like a second birth, as you suggested, a deeper consciousness than he had enjoyed before. The driving force in religion, William James decided, is that cry for help. That comment reflects several strands in James's thinking. One is the sense that we can strive after, even in the pits of despair, the universe affords opportunities for us to connect, to connect to the wider universe. Tolstoy uses the word to connect to God. And that belief that we can have some sort of connection, that we're not sort of cloistered up in our own little skull-sized kingdoms, but that we can reach out into the world and affect it and allow the world to affect us is a deeply Jamesian idea or sense. I'm reminded a little bit of the fact that James, when he envisions the self, what it is to be a self, he says that we have a material self, which oftentimes is our body and our clothes, but we also have what's called a social self, which is the relationships that we have with our, he says, loved ones and mates or neighbors. Where we go to give and get esteem. Exactly, recognition. Yeah. And then we have what he calls a spiritual self, which is any sort of, in his words, 
religious or moral aspiration. And that aspiration, I think, is at the heart of that Tolstoy quote. When you have moments where you want to give up, it's that aspiration for life and for some sort of communion that keeps us going. And that's what James was after, both in a sort of diagnostic or descriptive role, where he said, this is what human beings are like and where they tap meaning, but then also in a type of like encouraging role, saying, you can do this. It's part of what it is to be human, is to connect, to exercise one's freedom, to wait, to live, and to aspire. And I, I think that with James, that's really the message of both his psychology but also his spiritual writings after 1900. William James was interested in the experience at the root of all of our thinking. He was also interested in the contradictory thought behind the thought, the bizarre thought, the fantastic or mind-blowing thought. He was into eccentrics and spooks and seances in which all sorts of kind of unconscious thoughts surfaced. James was obsessed throughout his life with what he termed in the varieties of religious experience, the unseen order. Exactly. That sort of like just the smallest nuance of experience that is there and passes away or what's at the fringes of our experiences, the penumbra, the sort of like the cloud that's just beyond the conscious. And he famously says that the subliminal might be the principal question of modern psychology, which I think is an interesting point. Explain that. Subliminal, under the threshold. Under the threshold. So not unconscious, but unseen. Unseen for the time being, perhaps. Possibly studied in empirical ways, the way that he does with his seance sitting. And he started a society called the Society for Psychical Research and spent thousands, and I don't overstate this, thousands of hours studying raps and, you know, seances and mediums and uh, paranormal He was also interested in drugs, nitrous oxide. The joke was, but not entirely a joke, that if you walked into a laboratory and saw a beaker with a clear fluid in it, his first instinct would have been to taste it. That's right. And I mean, James was interested in these experiences, not just because they blew his mind or changed his mind, a la Mm -hmm. Michael Pollan. He actually is pointing something out of philosophical significance and also significance for us as thinkers today. When one has these sort of supranormal experiences, as he would describe them, or uses nitrous oxide and has the experience of coming to he uses that term, coming to, what you discover is that life and consciousness always outstrips Hmm. our attempts to explain it. In other words, there is always something stranger or more wondrous out there that our descriptions of life and consciousness miss. Did he write or did I imagine it that we in the universe are analogous in a way to a cat in a library. I mean, the cat can see the books, but hasn't the faintest notion what they're about. Right. I mean, the ancients, the ancient Greeks like to say that nature loves to hide. <laughs> and James loved to seek, but always believed that nature would probably remain sphinx-like. In other words, remain quiet, remain uh, 
inaccessible in a particular way, that the secrets are there to be experienced, that the mystery is there to be experienced, but not to be explained away wholly. Here we are in 2023 confronting artificial intelligence in a real form of these chatbots that can read and write and compose and answer questions. And way beyond the Turing test, they can create, it would seem. And nobody knows quite yet what to make of it for all time. But surely it is the very opposite, the polar opposite of the way William James described thought. For example, his version was, we think And as we think, we feel our bodily selves as the seat of the thinking. If the thinking be our thinking, it must be suffused through all its parts with that peculiar warmth and intimacy that makes it come as ours. The self is felt in our thinking. The social self transmits to the people in our personal tribe and most particularly to people that we're in love with. An inmost self, a spiritual something, goes out to welcome or reject what is outside it. Could that mind even imagine the pretense of chatbots? The pretense of chatbots is thinking that these chatbots can come close to what it is to be fully human in the richness of thinking. And that is a long, long way off. We would need to reproduce life itself in order to make these chatbots fully human when it comes to that question. James is pointing out that every thought, every act of quote-unquote intellectual Mm. computation is embodied and felt emotionally by an organism who at once is in the context of broader social and cosmic relations. And until our chatbots and our robotics can have feelings and then respond to the environment and have an evolutionary history that has delivered them to have particular habits of thought and particular proclivities of mind, we're still a far cry from autonomous computation or autonomous robotics. You know, we're all bemused by the whole chatbot phenomenon, GPT-3, 4, who knows what's next. But... I'm just a little surprised that that pushback against AI isn't being heard in the land, that this is a profoundly non-human and maybe human-unfriendly development. It's also quite frightening, and I think James would be on this in a second, that we oftentimes confuse technical abilities. In other words, uh, the ability to do a particular computation with making judgments about value and making judgments about what is right and wrong and what is better and worse. And these technologies open what economists like to call a moral hazard. And James would have been on this. A moral hazard is a situation in which we don't have to necessarily face the consequences of a particular action. If we, for example, offload a lot of the human thinking and human acting to technological means. And if we don't have to face the consequences of our actions, we're much more ready to commit moral wrongdoing, or much more ready to sort of stand aside and let the technological superiority of our mechanisms to actually take the role 
of moral decision making. I think that James would be very concerned about that. His bumper sticker, if it had to be just one, would be something like, think of the consequences, test the consequences, hold these experiments accountable. And it's not simply test the consequences for you. Exactly. It's not simply test the consequences for you in your nuclear family, in your apartment or your home or in your dormitory room. The consequences, James intends that comment to mean consequences for every community, every individual, every nation, every planet, every solar system. That is the type of responsibility that William James is asking us to take up. Now, it might seem daunting, but we're up to the task. Like we actually, James believes, can think through the consequences of our actions in far more detailed and nuanced ways than we typically do. And uh, James would be very worried about the crass instrumentalism that has gripped our nation. The idea that we are separated in our families or in our very local communities, that what is most important is most immediate, what is most sort of locally important is most important. James doesn't believe that. Now, James was interested in acting locally, that's true, but he was the first one to think, act locally and think globally. John, let's talk about his most famous, I think most famous essay, The Moral Equivalent of War. He died in 1910. I think he'd be surprised that we're still here because he felt palpably the powers of destruction and weaponry way exceeded the powers of diplomacy, generation, building of nations. And um, it was out of hand and he hadn't even imagined nuclear weapons or World War I or World War II or the endless war we seem to be in today. The fundamental point was that we are bred to war that everyone among us is descended from a survivor of a battle and that this experience is not lost on what we're doing today. He said, modern man inherits all the innate pugnacity and all his ancestors' love of glory, showing war's irrationality and horror is of no effect upon him. The horrors make the fascination. We're still drawn to war and yet we can see the the utterly terminal dimension we're in now. His answer was the moral equivalent. Boy Scouts, Alcoholics Anonymous, group thinking, Civilian Conservation Corps worked magnificently, it seemed, in the Depression. But where are we now in coping with being aware of the trap of war? The moral equivalent of war is one of James's more confusing but also more appealing essays. I think... What is appealing about it is James's honesty about how attractive conflict and imminent danger and situations of friction can be, and how these dangers and conflicts can coalesce a community, bring people together. And James says that we crave the opportunity to show ourselves in some sort of heroic way, to exercise our wills and to exercise our power. And war gives us that outlet. Now, James is extremely frightened in the moral equivalent of war by what would become total war in World War I and then World War II. 
the idea that these conflicts that we would have would be so disastrous, so long-standing, so total uh, for both military but also a citizenry that we destroy ourselves. So he develops what he calls the moral equivalent as a way of sublimating or redirecting our aggressive energies into what he describes as, controversially, he says, let us war against nature. Let us war against environmental degradation. Let us war against our own natures. Let us war against impending doom of a sort of global or climate scale. These are the types of projects that should be on our minds and galvanize the population. That's what James is encouraging us to do. He said, our ancestors have bred pugnacity into our bone and marrow and thousands of years of peace won't breed it out of us. Therefore, we have to organize our energies, our contention, our fighting instincts in a totally different way. But when I say he speaks to our moment, I'm thinking precisely of this. When you look at the news today, war in Ukraine without any end in sight and in the background, not far, the idea of war with China, of all people, drumbeat in our news. He could have been speaking of precisely that when he said, it may even reasonably be said that the intensely sharp preparation for war by the nations is the real war, permanent, unceasing, and that the battles are only a sort of public verification of the mastery gained during the peace interval. In other words, that war or peace, it's always a war on the way, and you better be ready. I think William James might well say, you're rushing toward the end of everything. What would happen if we turn the monies from geopolitical war to a war to save us as a species? I think James would make that suggestion if he were alive today. I think so, too. I think you might say, first thing, get into an alliance with China. About something that actually is threatening both of us. Like the climate. Yeah. John Keck, where else do we see the fine mind of William James in our world? I'm thinking Alcoholics Anonymous. David Foster Wallace in Infinite Jest made sly references to the Jamesian touch in getting out of alcoholism. The whole matter of self-study as William James practiced it. And I'm always struck that Freud, his contemporary, built the psychiatric institution around the world. What would Jamesian therapy be like? James shows up in all sorts of unexpected places. We can think about cognitive neuroscience as basically beginning in James's principles of psychology. If we think about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and the way that we change our habits, in order to change the way that we live and the way that we think and the relationship between our habits and the way that we think and live. That's Jamesian psychology straight from what's called the James Lang theory of emotions, which says that my emotions are intimately connected to my bodily processes. The way that I act determines the way that I feel. When it comes to spirituality, James was on the forefront of trying to think about naturalistic ways of thinking about the spiritual realm. In other words, we want spirituality, we want some sense of meaning, but we don't necessarily want the trappings of all this religious institutions. James was onto that in 1902, and much of the work that is done today 
in religious studies around natural theology stems back to James. If you think about AA, Alcoholics Anonymous is based almost exclusively on James's philosophy and on James's psychology. And there are millions of individuals who have been saved by that course of action. Spell that out, how it works. Sure, I mean, James believes that freedom and togetherness is essential Hmm. for flourishing human life. And when AA says, let go and let God, in other words, let go of the habits and your pretensions to being an individual self and an individual will and turn things over to some sort of, it's not even a higher power, it's the higher powers. This is a Jamesian thought. And the fact that it's higher powers is both inclusive and nuanced in ways that simply saying, turn yourself over to a singular G-O-D is not. And I think James would have applauded that sort of move, that we are supposed to get over ourselves. And I think that that's a very Jamesian thought, get over yourself in order to find yourself again. I see that as what AA is asking its participants to do, get over yourself. A collective free choice, so to speak. Correct. And I think James was on the trail of that in his religious writing, but also in the way that he thought about ourselves as always being in relation, always Mm. already in relation to something far greater than ourselves. So interesting. A collective step in free will that you might not have mustered on your own. That's right. And we rarely do. John, there's so much to this man. I can imagine talking about him, listening, reading him forever in all the time I have, but this is a start. And I'm so grateful to you for getting us going. We've talked about metal process. We've talked about sick souls that can recover. We've talked about the moral equivalent of war. Let's take it up, not so far down the road, but thank you enormously for getting us going. Oh, thank you. I look forward to it. John Cagg is professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. He's the author of Sick Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life, and co-editor with Jonathan Van Bell of Be Not Afraid of Life, in the words of William James. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasters sharing some of the most engaging audio you can find. This week, check out a Hub and Spoke show called Iconography from Charles Gustine. It's all about the iconic places, objects, and legends that define our culture. Listen in at iconographypodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And find the full Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.com. Dot org.